Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, let me ask you this morning to begin. Do you ever feel like saying Jesus' words on the cross? They are from Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is uh, on the cross there quoting David in Psalm 22 where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Sometimes God seems distant, very distant. Sometimes it feels like he's sitting somewhere on his throne beyond the boundaries of this universe and has no interest in being with us or answering our prayers. David's cry in Psalm 22 is an honest outpouring of his heart. And it's good to bring our tears and our laments and our groans of God's seeming remoteness honestly before him. But David doesn't remain there, and nor should we. And not only that, we have an even firmer reason not to remain there. The story of the nativity, which we hear so often, especially at Christmas time, brace yourself, it's coming is so much more than just a pleasant story about baby Jesus. It is a promise of God's always and forever presence with us. And in it we find two names for our Lord and Savior, which will be the headings of this morning's sermon. Number one, Jesus, Savior from sin. And two, Emmanuel, God with us. We heard last week at the beginnings of Jesus through his family line. And this morning we see his beginning through the announcement of his birth. As we begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your word, recognizing, acknowledging, trembling before it. Father, may our hearts not be hard, but may your spirit work in our hearts and in our lives to open our ears and to respond to what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin from our first heading, Jesus, Saviour from Sin. Every person after Adam and Eve to have ever existed was born. Now, kids, believe it or not, a very long, long time ago, your parents were born. Did you know that? They haven't just always existed. There was a time when they did not exist, and then their parents Produced them and they were born. 
Now, even though it happened differently, Jesus was also born. And that's what we're about to read about. Let's look at the first sentence of verse 18. Yeah, well, is, is it somewhere in the playlist? Or is it not? Sorry, everybody, once again. I can't see it. Uh, let's, let's look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The word uh, birth there is the same one uh, that we find for the word genealogy in verse 1, just in a different form. Now, the birth, genesis, of Jesus Christ, and the book of the genealogy, geneseos, is the word there that we have uh, in that verse. Thank you, Hugh, there. There's a sense of continuity here with what Matthew has already begun, which we saw at the beginning of his gospel. This is the account of the beginnings of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the one who is the Christ. This makes sense because Matthew doesn't actually say a whole lot about the actual birth of Jesus. Uh, That gets half a sentence at the start of chapter 2. No, what, what Matthew's about to tell us isn't a detailed account of you know, how many hours Mary spent in labor and you know, whether Joseph cut the umbilical cord or whether the animals you know, started to sing Silent Night after he was born. We're not, Matthew's not giving us that in this next passage. What we're about to hear is how Joseph found out the true uniqueness of his soon-to-be adopted son. What's so fascinating about Matthew's account of this, I think, is that the focus really is on Joseph. It's not like Luke's account, which includes the angel's visit to Mary and her lengthy song in response. Let's read the story, continuing on from verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Kids, let me ask you this morning, do any of you know whom you're going to marry when you become an adult? You might, maybe you might have someone you hope to marry But you don't know whom you are going to marry yet, do you? Well, believe it or not, in some cultures, their parents decide whom they are going to marry before they even meet them very often. In in our uh, world today, we call that being betrothed. Now, uh, that kind of thing might have happened in Joseph and Mary's day, but that's actually not what we're talking about here in this story. Some English translations actually use the word engaged. And to our ears, uh, that means that a man and a woman have promised to get married to one another. Usually it involves giving the woman a ring that she can wear to show that she has been promised to somebody. But in our culture, they are still not technically married. And so if you break off an engagement in our culture, it is not considered divorce. Now, it's tricky because there's not an exact uh, English word that captures this relationship that Matthew is talking about between Joseph and Mary. It's actually somewhere in between these two. Basically, Joseph and Mary were engaged the same way that we might think of it. They've been promised to be married. But in Jewish culture, that meant more than just a promise. The marriage had not been consummated yet, but they were considered to be married in the sense that it was just as binding as if they were. This engagement process usually lasted about a year, and then after that, uh, they would come together, as our passage says, and consummate the marriage. 
But as I said, it is just as binding as marriage. That's why Joseph is described as divorcing her, and he's also described as her husband in verse 19. So you can imagine this situation, right? Here is someone promised to be your wife, and you haven't yet come together. But now she's found to be with child. From the, ma- from the narrative, it seems clear that Joseph didn't actually know that she was with child by the Holy Spirit at this point, a detail that Matthew adds for our benefit. And in Old Testament days, the penalty for a woman to be found pregnant like this was death. Now, by Joseph's day, it seems like it wasn't as widely practiced, but it was still a possibility. The woman caught in adultery in John 8, for example, was about to be stoned. Now, Joseph was a just man. He did what was right. And that's why he knew that he had to divorce her. He knew the law. He couldn't marry someone who, as far as he could tell, had been unfaithful. But here we get a glimpse of his compassion and his kindness. Just put yourself in Joseph's shoes Can you imagine the joy of anticipating a wedding day and beginning a life together with your future spouse? Imagine the pain of finding out that your fiancé cheated on you before you even got there. Joseph, in that pain, in that sense of betrayal, could easily have announced it to the community. He easily could have shamed Mary so that no other potential suitors would go near her. But no. He was, as Matthew says, unwilling to put her to shame. Joseph embodies the traits of a loving husband by not only seeking to do what is right, what is just, but also by showing compassion. This is the kind of justice and mercy held together that his adopted son would embody. Jesus, as it turns out, would walk in his heavenly father's and his earthly adoptive father's footsteps by holding together righteousness and mercy. just as those who follow Jesus would seek to do after him. Because divorces only required a couple of witnesses to be finalized, Joseph could have only told those two witnesses and then asked them to respect their privacy. I imagine that's what he was planning to do in divorcing her quietly. And that would have still given Mary a chance to marry. It's hard for us to grasp how significant This actually is. You see, if Joseph had gone in the opposite direction and chosen to shame Mary publicly to their people, he was potentially setting up Mary for a life of poverty without support from a husband. But he didn't. Joseph was just. And Joseph was merciful. And thankfully, Joseph was saved from having to do that anyway. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I know we don't hear or read the word behold much today, but it's used often in the Bible to draw attention to something important that's about to happen or about to be said. It's like putting an exclamation mark before the beginning of the sentence. While Joseph is thinking about divorcing Mary, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And now, kids, I won't ask this of you as a genuine question, although if you do know it, feel free to say. It's a tricky one. But do you know what the word angel means aside from a heavenly being being sent from God? Anyone? Well, the word angel 
actually means messenger. The original Greek word angelos just means messenger. And that's where we get our word angel from. And the main purpose of angels was to deliver messages to people on God's behalf. So that's what this angel is doing for Joseph. And he does it in a dream. Have you ever heard of a pizza dream? Anyone? Has anyone had a pizza dream? No? Am I the only one? Really? Does nobody know? You know what I mean? Maybe it's a Victorian thing. You know, pizza dream is the term that you use uh, when you refer to a really wild and wacky dream that you usually have after you've eaten pizza. No? Really? Nobody knows that term? There you go. For some reason, you know, pizza activates the kooky corner of your brain. Well, we know for sure that this definitely was not a pizza dream for Joseph. God used dreams in the past to speak to his people like Jacob and the other Joseph in Genesis who also interpreted dreams. And we saw some in the book of Daniel as well. And God speaks to Joseph through a dream this time around. And he addresses him in a very telling way. Can anyone remember who Joseph's dad was from the genealogy? You can go back if you like. It's in verse 16 of chapter 1. Jacob. Jacob was Joseph's father. So why didn't the angel call him Joseph, son of Jacob? That would be the logical answer, wouldn't it? The logical thing to call him? Well, as we saw last week with Matthew's clear emphasis on the 14 generations and the number 14, which represents David's name, here again we see how God is showing us who Jesus is. The scepter from the tribe of Judah, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the king from the line of David. This is the only time anyone other than Jesus in, in the gospel narratives that we have, is called a son of David. You see what, see what God is saying as he addresses Joseph? Here is the one you've been waiting for. This is him. Once again, the anticipation, the, the hope of the coming Christ, it rises as we see Joseph being addressed as the son of David. And the angel tells Joseph not to be afraid of taking Mary as his wife because she actually has not been unfaithful. No, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed puts it this way, using the same language as our passage. We believe in one Lord Jesus the only begotten Son of God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> this is how Jesus was born. This was his beginning on earth. I don't know exactly how God did this, what the biological and the spiritual mystery was that governed Jesus' conception, but I know that he did do it. For many, especially the Jews of his day, this notion of God becoming man was ridiculous. Even today, many find the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ to be offensive and unworthy of God. And yet this is who and how God chooses to fulfill what the Old Testament foreshadowed. And it's not just because he would be born by the Holy Spirit, in itself an incredible thing. This son of David would not be like any other son the world had ever seen. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for... He will save his people from their sins. 
I briefly mentioned last week how the Jews of Jesus' day were waiting for the Christ to come. They were waiting for the Messiah. But the kind of Christ most of them were expecting was one who would be a national leader, one who would liberate them from Rome and make Israel great again. And his name would, here, the naming of Jesus would have only reinforced that idea. Jesus, which is the Greek version of the name Joshua, means the Lord is salvation. And if you think about Joshua from the Old Testament, he was the one who succeeded Moses and led the people into the promised land. So for those who are waiting for this kind of Messiah, up until this point, you would be salivating. You would expected the angel to say next, you shall call him Jesus and he will lead your people back to the promised land. Just as the other Jesus, Joshua, did. Or you shall call him Jesus and he will be greater than Alexander the Great. He will be Jesus, the greatest of the great. But no, what does the angel say? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the explanation given for his name. The meaning of his name is tied to this definition. Jesus, meaning the Lord is salvation, doesn't mean those things. It means he will save his people from their sins. This was unexpected. Non-biblical Jewish texts like the Psalms of Solomon and 1 Enoch expanded on the Messiah's role. And when they did, they, they expected him to eliminate sin, the Messiah. They expected him to, to judge sin, but not forgive sin. Not save his people from their sin. God takes the common expectation of the Jews and says, you know, you think I'm going to do this. You're expecting this. But I have even bigger, greater, grander plans than what you imagined. It's interesting here because Matthew, throughout his gospel, uses the term people to refer to the Jews. So it certainly sounds, again, like it's good news only for Jews. But the rest of the book makes it crystal clear that Jesus Christ brings good news to all people. And tragically, his people, the very people through whom the promises come, as we see through this book, reject him by the droves. And so in this verse, his people is most immediately referring to the Jews. But just like the rest of the book, it points to the expanding nature of salvation that the Messiah brings. It's, it's boundary breaking. It's, it's nation spreading good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation from sin. This is good news this is the good news. Jesus was not a military Messiah. No, the one whose name means the Lord is salvation came to save his people from their sins. Matthew anticipates why Jesus was given this name. It's because of the gospel. And friends, if you're here this morning and you're wondering how and why this could be called good news, it's because God says in his word that all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. He says that sin, which all of us have been born into and with, requires God's righteous wrath to be poured out on us for it. Our biggest problem is not that we're not part of a more powerful nation. It's not that we don't have a large enough house or property that we live on. The Bible says that our biggest problem is our sin. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to save. That's why Jesus came to save us from our sins. 
And he did so by living a perfect life of obedience to the Lord and dying on a Roman cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. That's how he saves his people from his sin. And his people are now all those who have turned away from their sin and trust in his finished work on the cross for salvation. God's people, his people are now found in his church, which is seen in local churches all over the world who believe and proclaim this gospel message. His people are now made up of all people from all nations, from all kinds of backgrounds. His people are found in those who have been saved from sin by his marvelous grace and now live to turn away from sin and please him by that same grace. If you're yet to do that, hear this good news and turn and trust in Christ, the one who came to save his people from their sins. That is my greatest desire for you. And I pray that you would do so. And brothers and sisters, when you call on and remember the name Jesus, remember what this name means. You might think that your biggest need is getting out of the desert in Darwin and living in the promised land of the Sunshine Coast. I would agree with you. That is the promised land. Or conquering some great enemy or some great fear in your life that with God's help you, need, you, know, you, you can be freed from. No. The Lord is salvation. It's what Jesus' name means because he saves his people from their sins. That is our greatest need. Brothers and sisters, if you are weary... Jesus is your salvation. If you feel like things aren't going the way you'd like them to in life, remind yourself that your greatest problem has a great Savior. He has saved you from your sins. It is when we see that our deepest problem has a solution in our Savior that we can find hope for all of our other problems. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. And just as the angel brought this message to Joseph, may we all bring that message to all who will hear. Tell your friends that there is a Savior and his name is Jesus. The Lord is salvation. Jesus is salvation. And he is with us. Which brings us to our second name. Emmanuel. God with us. What an incredible thought this is. That God is with us. Let's read from verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The angel's message finishes and Matthew now takes up the pen to explain more of what this means. This is the first of Matthew's nine, all this took place to fulfill quotations from the Old Testament. You see, he is greatly concerned that his readers see in Jesus the fulfillment of all that the Lord had spoken by the prophets. So he quotes Isaiah 7.14. Interestingly, the context of the chapter of Isaiah 7 is that God is giving the wicked king Ahaz assurance of his power over earthly kings. And ironically, Ahaz was putting his trust in human kings. 
So when Syria and northern Israel were in an alliance against him, seeking to go to war with him, he tried to get help from the king of Assyria. But God, through Isaiah, called him to trust in the Lord. And even though Ahaz did not and remained wicked, God gave him this prophecy of the virgin who will conceive and bear a son that will remind him of the Lord's presence and his sovereignty over all the nations. Now, some Christians think that this verse in Isaiah points only to Jesus in the far future, which is why Matthew quotes it. I would be of the view that because of the verses after this in Isaiah 7, the prophecy is actually fulfilled in their day. And what Matthew is seeing here are types and shadows of the one who would come later and was spoken of in the rest of the Old Testament. Isaiah 7.14, even though it referred to and was fulfilled in a real event in their time, an actual son born, it also contained a mystery that would be revealed and find its greatest fulfillment in Jesus. You notice how the content and language of this verse is peppered throughout this passage. And we know Mary is a virgin because they have not consummated their marriage yet. And in verses 20 and 21, she is conceived and will bear a son and they will call his name. God is connecting those links between Isaiah 7.14 and the birth of Jesus. And as we saw, his name would be Jesus. That's what angel told Joseph to name him. And obviously that's the name that he would go by. But Matthew tells us that the name Emmanuel also applies to Jesus. Now, this is, in fact, the only place where we see the name Emmanuel in the New Testament. And it's only seen one other time in the Old Testament, later on in Isaiah. It wasn't used as a second name or a nickname. As far as we're aware, nobody went around calling Jesus Emmanuel. But if they had it would not have been inappropriate. Because this name tells us even more about who Jesus was and what his coming was about. The son who was born to Mary, whom they were told to call Jesus, fulfills Isaiah 7.14 in a way that God intended from eternity past. You see, while in some sense... The son that was born to fulfill this word to King Ahaz and Isaiah showed God's presence. Jesus would take that to a whole new level. God is not only present in his military might. He is present in the Savior who saved us from our sins. God is with us. Emmanuel. Do you think God has forsaken you? Do you think he has abandoned you? Does it feel like he has left you behind because he doesn't care about you? Do you feel like he has deserted you? Maybe because you feel the guilt and shame of your own sin? Church, he is with us. God has always been omnipresent. But in Jesus, he came to dwell among his people in a way that changed who his people are forever. We are a people marked by his presence. Maybe you don't feel that. Maybe your definition of the word presence is some kind of thing that you should be able to tangibly touch or feel. Maybe you, like me, on some days, perhaps perhaps even on most days, Don't feel anything remotely like that, God's presence. In fact, more often than not, it feels like God is a million miles miles away and is not with us at all. 
Maybe those times when you thought you did feel God's presence, you're not so sure about now. We stumble and we struggle to trust that this is true because we think it's directly related to our own ability to feel that God is with us. Now, to be sure, if you are actively distancing yourself from God, well, that's, that's a dangerous move. If God feels far, far away, maybe that is the reason. And we ought to soberly reflect on whether that's because our hearts are falling more in love with our own sin than with Him. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And perhaps that's the case. And I wouldn't want any of us to think that we could walk out of here with that false assurance. But on the flip side, if you are holding on to Jesus, even if it feels like you're doing so by a fingernail, that is enough. And Samuel Rutherford encapsulates perfectly in his line, I hang by a thread. But it is, if I may so speak, of Christ's spinning. And when it is Christ's thread, then you know it will not break. Praise God that the truth of Him being with us is not dependent on how I feel, but on His truth, on His reality. You might be wondering where God is in your life. Perhaps you've been wondering that for years and decades. Perhaps it has felt like God hasn't been with you at all, but has actually mostly been completely out of reach. Maybe you feel guilty about that. Don't put your faith in faith. It's not your confidence in God that guarantees His presence. It's not your piety that guarantees his presence. It's not your devotional reading that guarantees his presence. It is the certainty of his word, the certainty of his promise. Emmanuel, brothers and sisters, God is with us, even when it feels like he isn't. Even though we can't see him. Even though Jesus' physical body no longer walks the surface of the earth. He is with us. And notice the plural nature of this promise. He is with us. He came to save his people from their sins. Do you want to know one place where you can be guaranteed that Jesus is among the people? It is in his church. Not every group that calls itself a church. It is in his church where the gospel is believed and proclaimed. And committing to and regularly gathering with a local church that stands on the good news of Jesus Christ is about so much more than joining a club of like-minded people. It is about being with the people among whom God dwells. Did you know that? He is here. He is with us. And that's why we are jealous for his glory among us. That's why we are jealous for, for his name to be lifted high, to be represented well among us. That's why we pray together, why we sing together, why we teach one another, why we disciple one another, why we spur one another on. We are the people among whom God dwells. As a Christian, the church will always be a part of your life. Did you know that? Did you realize that that's what you signed up for? One of the pastors I was with this week said that as he and his family went through weeks and months of COVID lockdowns and not being able to meet together as a church, he felt spiritually dry. He was feeling it. 
And he said something along the lines of, I don't understand how a person can regularly go so long without meeting with God's people and not feel that. I don't understand how a Christian could be separated from God's people and think that they're okay. He's right. The Christian faith is meant to be lived out in the midst of God's people. Even if you're an introvert and you struggle with being around people, you prioritizing being with the Lord's people on the Lord's day is one indicator of genuine faith. Because he is with his people. He is with us. Ready yourself now to be with God's church at least every Lord's day for the rest of your life. That is one way that God ensures your perseverance in him. And anyway, you might as well get used to it because they are the people you'll be spending eternity with. I mean, there'll be more of them, so you know you can... In his presence... But you might object, this verse is just talking about the coming of Jesus. It's speaking generally about him coming as a human being. And as I already said, his physical body isn't here anymore. So how can this verse apply in that way? You know, doesn't that blunt the force of of what I'm saying just a little bit? If it weren't for the fact that this isn't the final word, perhaps you'd be right. But you see, Matthew is making a point by bookending his gospel with this promise to God's people. Have a look at Matthew 28, 20. After he gives the great commission to his disciples, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the last word in Matthew's gospel. Jesus gives the great commission. He he tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all peoples across the whole world. Once again, showing that expansion of the gospel and what Jesus came for. And he finishes with this incredible word of assurance. I am with you always till the end of the age. And again, the you is plural. Jesus promises to be with his people until the end of the age, until he comes again. He is with us. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how many of us here today really need to hear this right now. But if you do, I pray that you do. And I pray that it sinks deeply into your heart. That even in your darkest despair, He is with us. Even when you feel alone or lonely, He is with us. Even when you doubt whether He is with us or not, He is with us. When God feels distant, be with the very people that Jesus has promised to remain with till the end of the age. His presence among us is not dependent upon whether we get the, right, the mood right or whether we play the right songs or whether we word our prayers just right. No, it is dependent upon His promise. And so it is in your life. When you trust in Jesus, he has promised to be with his people until the end of the age. Jesus knew what he was doing, you see. He knew that it would be better for his people to have his spirit rather than his physical body with them until the end of the age. And that is what we have, church. May we delight in that. Increasingly trust in and lean on that truth. Well, our passage finishes with the conclusion of this visitation from verse 
24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Remember the situation that Joseph was in at the beginning of this story. A just and compassionate man, he was ready to do the right thing by divorcing his seemingly adulterous fiancée. And he was going to do it in secret so as not to shame her. But upon hearing the word of the Lord, what does he do? He does as the angel of the Lord, the messenger from God, commanded him. He marries Mary. He doesn't consummate the marriage until after the birth of Jesus. He takes him in, receives him as his own son, and he names him Jesus. And so, the completion of the prophecy is fulfilled. The son of Joseph, Jesus, becomes the son of David. It's worth considering at this point that Mary's reputation was probably already sullied. That's a fun word. Kids, any of you know what that means? It means like smeared, made really bad. Dirtied. I wonder how many people might have given suspicious sideways glances at the two of them. I wonder how many whispered in little groups as they saw them and suspected immorality and thought, yeah, I don't buy this story you guys are selling us. Joseph could have stuck to his guns and been more concerned about his own reputation in the Jewish community. He could have woken up and convinced himself, oh, that was just a pizza dream. I don't want to take Mary and all the baggage that comes with her to be my wife. I'm certainly not suggesting that God still speaks to us in dreams today. But one thing is for sure. Such obedience to God's word ought to characterize those who follow him. You notice how there is no record of Joseph speaking at all in this passage? Quiet Joseph, not talkative Joseph. What we have is an example of Joseph's quiet, faithful obedience. You see, his faith isn't demonstrated in his words, but his actions speak volumes. Upon hearing God's word, he was ready to obey, even at what was likely significant social cost to his reputation. This was always, has always been, and will always be characteristic of followers of Jesus. We've seen an example of this recently, haven't we? Andrew Thorburn's resignation as CEO of the Essendon Football Club was a decision that made zero sense to the world. They couldn't comprehend why he would choose to remain in a voluntary leadership position for a church and choose that over one of the most prestigious and well-paid positions you can get. They don't understand that gaining Christ at the cost of losing the world? For a Christian, it's a simple decision. For followers of Jesus, his presence with us today and into eternity is a treasure that cannot be matched by any earthly treasure. Brothers and sisters, may we be known as ones who are willing willing and ready to lose the world, to suffer slander, to receive unjustified slights on our character for the sake of faithful obedience to the word of the Lord. Pray that we would have such courage and obedience as our faith is put to the test.
Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ came so that we would be assured that God is with us. How? On that cross, he was forsaken by the Father as he took on the penalty of our sins. And he did so so that we could be saved from our sins and be guaranteed that he is with us now until the end of the age. Church, we are never alone. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We praise and thank you for your wisdom, for your power, for your presence among us. Lord, we recognize that there are times, often, when we doubt that, when we don't feel that, and when we struggle with that. And so we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of our unbelief, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would enable us to persevere, knowing that Christ remains with us until the end of the age. I pray, Father, that we would not forget Jesus, the Savior from our sins. Emmanuel, God with us. In his name we pray. Amen.